Hello and welcome to the Forward Firefighter Podcast. Here you can listen in on discussions with volunteer firefighters in Wisconsin and across the nation, hear their stories, learn about the communities they serve, and what it takes to be a volunteer firefighter. This episode is brought to you by Keller Inc. At Keller, they're not just building facilities, they're building safer communities. The Keller employee-owned team of architects and project managers work hand-in-hand with fire and rescue departments just like yours on building projects. Ready to start designing your new or remodeled facility? Listen to episode 12 of this podcast for related stories and helpful insights. Otherwise, go to kellerbuilds.com to fill out a contact form and a project manager will call in just a few hours. Keller, planners, architects, and builders. This is Dan from the Forward Firefighter Podcast. Very excited today to introduce you, my guest, humorist, songwriter, a best-selling author, Michael Perry. Michael, welcome to my podcast. How are you doing? I, I, I appreciate you having me on. I asked you how you're doing, and then I just plowed right ahead and didn't even let you answer. But <laughs> oh, no, that's I'm doing great. I'm really pleased to be able to to talk to you today. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just explain a little bit how I got to know uh, who you are and and uh, how did this this interview come about. I don't know when when was the book that you wrote. You know, Population 45. Not really sure when that exactly when that was was uh, published. But I want to say about a good eight years ago, I read that book mm-hmm. and I thought you did an excellent job. And I I talked to a lot of different people about, you know, just being a what it means to be a volunteer firefighter. And sometimes people are like, well, how does that work? You know, and then as discussion goes along, sometimes I'm like, you got to read this book called Population 45. <laughs> this guy kind of talks about a lot of the things we see. And even though it was maybe done, you know, uh, a number of years ago now, uh, there's still a lot of things today that, yep, that's exactly kind of how this stuff goes. Or, yep, I can relate to a call just like that, that he was talking about. Uh, so then from there, I thought, you know, doing this podcast and trying to get people from, you know, around the state. And I thought, you know, I wonder if this Michael Perry guy would take a shot and, and, and do an interview. And, and here you are. So thank you for the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm grateful to get any sort of conversation I can. This is nice. Yep, yeah, uh, Population 485 came out in 2002. I can't even believe it myself. Um, and just a bunch of thoughts come to mind when the when I reflect on how you just introduced me. One is just the privilege of writing that book. Um, I was allowed to, I, I moved back to my hometown after being away for 12 years. And I'm not a joiner. I'm a very much a loner. I always have been. And I'm just not good at, at like, I, I always joke when I moved back to my town of 485 people, I, I didn't belong to any of the local churches. I don't drink. I didn't go to the tavern. I don't play softball. I don't bowl and I can't polka. So there really wasn't much left to do except join the volunteer fire department. And uh, I work with a lot of folks on the coast, uh, New York City publishers and editors and agents, and then uh, lately even some folks in L.A. for film projects. And they'll find I'm still active on the local volunteer volunteer service and they'll find out that I'm a volunteer uh, first responder. And, and and they're always saying things like, oh, you must be very brave and noble. And I say, well, no. And then I explain to them that when I moved back to my hometown, my two brothers and my mom were already on the fire department. So I didn't really have a choice. It was more a peer pressure thing. But I think the greatest privilege was, you know, I was away from my hometown for 12 years 
And then I went back. And as I said, I'm a loner and not much of a joiner, but I wanted to somehow contribute. And so, yeah, I joined the volunteer fire department. Now, I had already been, I got my EMT license in 1988. And maybe I should back up even a little more and just say, um, I'm a farm kid from northern Wisconsin. I grew up milking cows, baling hay. In the winter, we logged. I uh, spent five years, uh, starting at the age of 16, working on a ranch in Wyoming, uh, mm-hmm. regular working beef and hay ranch. And that's how I put myself through college. I have a nursing degree. Um, and I basically, my first memory of a volunteer fire department is my dad was a city kid who bought the farm I was raised on. Now, I was two when we moved there, so all I remember is being a farm kid. Sure. But at some point, he had what they used to call a weed burner electric fence. And it did indeed burn weeds. And that's how I first met the new Auburn area fire department was Dan's <laughs> electric fence set the back 40 on fire. And all of a sudden, all these people appeared with fire trucks. And so I grew up there. I left at the age of 18, traveled a lot, went to college. And then 12 years later, I moved back to my hometown, population 485, and joined the fire department. And I had started writing for a living at that point. As a That's a whole other uh, interview. It was an accident. It was not something I set out to do on purpose. I just kind of worked mm-hmm. my way into it. And so I got back, uh, and I was on the department for six or eight years there. Uh, and, and then one day, uh, an agent in New York uh, City saw something I'd written about being a volunteer EMT in rural Wisconsin. And then I'd also written an article for a men's magazine about being a volunteer firefighter in a rural setting. And she said, well, could you turn, you know, expand those two essays into a book? And as a self-employed writer, I just said, yes, <laughs> we'll figure it out later. Right? And that then led to the book Population 485. And the privilege part of that is twofold. Number one, it was a privilege to write, tried my best to convey a snapshot of the tiny little town that I was raised in, or I was raised on a farm, but I grew up there, went to school there. And then the 12 years that I spent there on the volunteer fire department with my neighbors. It was a privilege to, to portray that town, but it was also a privilege to do my best to convey what we see out there. I want to make it so clear. I am not the world's greatest firefighter. I'm not the expert EMS guy. I'm just one of tens of thousands of people who, when mm-hmm. I'm available, answer the call. And and that was really my goal with that book was not to over rev it or turn it into something it isn't to just say, no, this is the day to day. And then this is how the fire and EMS world enters our day to day when we're volunteers. Mm-hmm. And so to, to kind of wrap up and let you uh, move this along, I um, I just was caught completely off guard by how that book was received. It's never been, I've had a book on the New York Times bestseller list. Population 45 has never been on the New York Times bestseller list, but it is outsold every book. I've written 24 books now, and it mm-hmm. is by far the bestseller because to get back to where we started, what amazes me is uh, 22 years after that book came out, it's still selling. And I'm still meeting people who read it five years ago. And even though the stories are two decades old, the experience is the same. And if I can take one compliment, it's not that I'm a hotshot firefighter or a rescuer. It's that I hope I was able to accurately convey the experience of the tens of thousands of volunteer firefighters and EMTs, and and in, and also including those who do it full time. Well, I, I think you did, and um, I, I really enjoyed it. And I need to read it again. <laughs> I think part of the fun too was that I would get the editors would kind of be curious, and then readers would send me emails. People who weren't in EMS, 
or fire. And they'd say, well, this book is so hilarious. Like I'm laughing on page seven and then on page nine, I'm crying my eyes out or it's a horrifying accident. And I said, well, yeah, that's that's life. I mean, that's part of fire and EMS is one minute you're just bored out of your skull or you're mowing the lawn or you're doing your taxes and the next minute you're ripping down the road lights and sirens yep. so yep yeah that's exactly how it is it's, you know for me too if i'm working from home during the day which i'm uh, privileged to be able to do right now uh, and the tones go off if i'm not scheduled for a you know a meeting or something like that i go and so one second you're working and then the next second you're you know unwedging someone who's stuck between the toilet and the bathtub most dangerous spot on earth how many people do we find in that spot <laughs> quite a few actually <laughs> i mentioned in population 45 of finding someone wedged between yeah. the toilet and the bathtub mm-hmm. Um, In general, tell me a little bit about like, you know, what is your life like now? I know you're doing all these different things. um, And how how do you find time uh, for volunteer firefighting in the the department that you're on now? Yeah, the quick honest answer is I don't find a lot of time. And um, I'm still uh, with the local service uh, as a first responder now. Um, I did move. Uh, just a little ways down the road, but into a different fire district. I still see all my crew up in New Auburn. Still, my family, a bunch of my family is still up there, so I'm up there on a regular basis. But I'm on another volunteer fire department about 40 minutes south of where the book was written. Um, and honestly, I'm on the road so much now that I, I make a handful of calls a year. Uh, I just did recertify again with my first responder. When I moved to this new department, it's much larger, even though it's still volunteer, it's much larger. And I'm just gone too often to keep up on my training as far, at least with my comfort level on the fire mm-hmm. equipment. And so I just said, you know what, I, I I know how everything inside that little orange bag works. So I'll, I'll stick with the first responding. Still do get out to fires. I was just out on a big house fire here about uh, two weeks ago because I do, when I'm available, I respond to do firefighter rehab. So I was out there, uh, you know, it was one of those fires where it was below zero and everybody's coated in ice and a big fire. And so I still uh, have, you know, keep a toe in it that way. I do miss, I loved firefighting. I loved putting the SCBA on and making an interior attack. And um, and again, just the greatest privilege of my life. I, I've had best-selling books. I get to travel and perform, and I, I just feel very fortunate. I'm not famous. I make a living. Um, pretty much nobody knows who I am, but somehow I sell enough books and get enough gigs performing-wise to make a living and and feed my family. But, um, but what a privilege to just serve beside people and um i I love going to the fire meeting every month every month when i can when i'm home because nobody there and i mean this in the very best way nobody gives a rip about how my latest book did or what i think about metaphors and similes or or the chord progression on this new song but we speak this language and i've written about that in a couple of my other books uh just essays about how I love going to the fire meeting to talk about blevies and O2 sats and things that, you you know, little terms that I could drop. I could be at the most educated circle of literary folks in the world. And if I t- started talking about a blevy, nobody would know what I was talking about. <laughs> and so I like that shared language. And I, and I like that when I show up at a fire scene, I'm my value does not lie in whether or not I can write beautifully. It lies in whether or not I... I know how to 
how to serve as firefighter rehab or mm-hmm. extrication, something like that. Yeah. It is, I think, an interesting aspect of a volunteer department is just how it pulls people from all different trades and, and um, career paths, and they all come together to serve that common goal. So uh, for me, it's really handy when you've got someone like, oh, I know on this scene, this guy can do HVAC work. Hey, I got to have him come up here and take a look at this. Or, um, you know, a, a guy like me who does more white collar work can pull data and numbers together to see our, you know, how, where our calls are going or if our response rates are improving or not. You know, it all comes together. Yeah, we had, I'm flashing back to when I first started on our department and, you know, I was, so I first started in the New Auburn department in 1995 and you were just seeing, they still had some of the old timers and there was, you know, there was the one guy you had to make sure he came to fires because he was the only guy who knew how to shift the deuce and a half, right? Which was this ancient old tender, we called them tankers back then, Mm -hmm. but, but nobody knew how to started or shifted except like three guys in their 70s <laughs> but you think the other thing you know you mentioned about coming from different walks of life like i'm in some ways i'm not your typical volunteer firefighter i've got soft hands so my brothers log and run heavy equipment and i come from that very blue collar uh, background and i wound up writing for a living and pretty much as i said as an accident i didn't plan it that way um but the we just need people with all different perspectives and talents. And especially mm-hmm. in rural areas now, like uh, uh, I have a buddy who's a woodworker. He does fine woodwork. And he was, he's in his, I think, late 40s, maybe early 50s. I hope he doesn't hear this and get insulted. Maybe he's 29, but I'm pretty sure he's not. Um, but anyways, he just one time was talking about, he said, I feel like I should join the fire department because I know they're really shorthanded, but I'm just, I'm not really that kind of guy. And and I said, man, you have all kinds of skills and they need everybody they can get. And um, he just the the fun part of that story is he, he called me halfway through his firefighter one and basically said, what what did you get? Actually, he texted me because I have the text. Basically said, what did you get me into, man? I'm too old <laughs> to be doing this. But he went through and passed. And then I mentioned that fire I was on two weeks ago and I'm in the firefighter rehab truck and the door opens up and in he comes covered in ice and, and needing to get checked out. And it was just so cool to to see him there. And and yeah, I think also, you know, I don't care to go too deeply into this, but we live in an age where folks seem to have a hard time talking to each other. And man, there's two things in this uh, in in the state of Wisconsin, as far as I'm concerned, that that still seem to transcend those difficult lines. One is the Packers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all Packer fans on yep. Sunday, except for you. I have a couple of very strange relatives who are Vikings fans. I can't explain oh, it, but by and large, we're all Packer fans. And then again, when you're on a fire scene or if you're working a really horrific accident, there's no time for anything but focusing on the patient who, in fact, may also be your neighbor or your relative. And so, yeah, I still cherish that part of it, too, um, just getting together for a shared purpose when in so many other aspects of our life, it's hard to find shared purpose. Right. And in that rural setting, too. You know, running into like I think you talked about in your book, just running into your neighbors. And sometimes, yes, that's how you get to meet your neighbors. But other times, I think the hard part is that you do know the, who these people are. But the the good thing is, is you're there to help them on one of their worst days. You know, you're there to, to provide assistance and do anything you can to 
whether it be something as small as uh, giving someone a peace of mind that, yep, your carbon monoxide detector went off and we went through other gas meters and everything's fine to, you know, uh, a bad accident or, or a structure fire or something like that. Yeah, I think sometimes just that personal connection and just someone taking time to stop and care is huge. Um, I also I think there's a I think I wrote in Population 485 that I always try to remind myself that at this point, I you know, I've made certainly hundreds, probably into the thousands of calls. Um, but I always try to remind myself when I show up that for for the family or the individual, this is not just another call. It's it's a day that will go down in in family lore is the day the ambulance came to mm-hmm. them. It's a very similar experience. And I try to I try to remember that. I would also say just so I, I, I love it when we talk about these sincere things and these important things. And I think maybe there's not enough of that. I also do like to just say, man, I, I love fire trucks and sirens and flashing lights and excitement too i yeah. i don't want it it's not always reflective and poetic sometimes it's just yeehaw you know let's go it is it is fun too i mean you're you're helping people but at the same time it is just the brotherhood and the sisterhood i really enjoy and then i know one of the stories i tell is <laughs> there's something about destroying things that's really fun yes <laughs> and one of the first one, one, early in my um, time on the department, I started in 2001, so I've been on for a while. And it was one of the first structure house fires that I was on. It was out in the country. And uh, a team had already gone in and done an interior attack. And then I was sent in to, to do overhaul. And we didn't have a thermal imaging camera at that time. I think we had one on order, maybe, one of the first ones. But we didn't have a thermal imaging camera. And our officer's like, well, just start opening up some of these walls and check for extension. And I took that to mean take out everything. (laughs) And and, uh, he came up and the look in his eyes after I was working on that room was like, "Okay, okay, good job. But you didn't have to do that much, you know, and I'm feeling all pumped up and, and I come out and the owners are standing there looking at the house and they're like, thank you. And I'm like, you're welcome. Yeah, uh, someone hands you a pike pole and sends you in to do all the things you were told you couldn't do when you were a kid, basically. (laughs) Uh, You know, tell me a little bit about, I know you said that you're helping out with uh, being a first responder and things like that. So, uh, you know, how do you, how much training do you do right now to kind of stay up on those latest skills and and those types of things? Well, I just did my uh, recertification. I think it was, Mm -hmm. was it last? Time flies by. Um, I know they're in a three-year rotation now, but uh, I just did that, so I renewed for another three years, and and then I make as many monthly meetings as I can when mm-hmm. I'm home, um, and then every once in a while uh, I double check because uh, because I can't make every meeting. Sometimes I need to actually make an appointment and go in with medical control and get updated on something. So I try to stay current, um, and of course. A lot of the things that we're doing as first responders or EMRs now is, uh, you know, it's basically what I was we were doing when we were basics back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got my I did my national registry for the first time in 1988. So I've seen a lot of <clears throat> a lot of changes. I've seen uh, some things stay the same. Uh, I still remember I'm from the era of mass trousers and all that kind of stuff. And. And I will say, I think the hardest thing as you get older, it's the cliche about teaching an old dog new tricks. It's not that I'm resistant to change, quite the opposite. 
uh, I think we need to engage change and, and we need to often move past things that are holding us back. But it, I will say it gets tougher the older I get. The, my most basic example is CPR. It, mm-hmm. it just it changes every time. And there's something about the first way you learn to do it that is absolutely ingrained in you at a cellular level. And that one of my favorite stories about that is my, my brother and I were at a getting our CPR research one time, and he's a rough and tumble heavy equipment operator, logger guy. And I think it was our second or third recertification, and we'd already noticed that things changed every time. And so about the third time, my brother looks over at me and he goes, yeah, well, eventually we won't even have to do any breaths. And he laughed like it was a joke. And of course, what? <laughs> we finally made it. <laughs> In certain circumstances and certain algorithms, it's like, oh, yeah, don't worry about breathing. Just <laughs> And I, every time we do that, I think of my brother 25 years ago seeing the future. So, right. And yeah, so I, those machines, I forget what they're called, but they actually do the compressions as well. Yes. Well, I'm just starting to see those where we are. I have not been on a call with one yet, but I just I know that just uh, within the last two weeks, some of my folks on my department made a call with one. Um, I think I think the hardest thing, you know, skills are skill checkoffs and that sort of thing are one thing. The thing I'm most conscious of and really keep an eye on myself is that it isn't just checkoffs. It's just call volume and staying in practice. And when you're like me and I'm only available to make a handful of calls a year. And by the way, every year I go to the chief and say, listen, if you need to give my gear to someone else, I know I can. Hire. And But of course, like I would say at this point, almost every department in a rural area, they're just like, no, we need everyone we can get whenever we can get them. But the one thing that I really try to keep an eye on myself with is that there's just nothing replaces making a lot of calls. Mm -hmm. And so I am at that stage now where, you know, I still do my skills and I I think it's okay for me to be in the field, but I'm also, if there's some young hotshot just chomping at the bit to get in there, like, let me hold the door for you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let me know if you need a bandaid in there or something. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm, I haven't uh, been trained on the EMS side, but from what I understand is, you know, those recertification tests, those are not easy either. One of the challenges you see, especially in volunteer departments where people are quite literally leaving work and, and giving of their time uh, to go respond to calls. I remember back in the day, and I try to avoid doing too much of that. I don't want to just be the old guy on the porch yelling at the clouds. But, you know, we'd come back and fill out a slip of paper about the call. Mm-hmm. And now you come back and you've got to go online and you've got to fill out multiple pages of information. And and listen, I actually defend some of that in that I, data is important. Data is how we learn. And I understand what the so I won't just, you know, make some sort of blanket negative statement. But there's no question that, you know, I've seen people just say, look, I just can't do that anymore. And so there are a lot of things that make it harder to to keep people mm-hmm. active aged at this point we kind of talked about it you kind of talked about it a little bit but just you know i would say what are the biggest things that you've seen that really have changed in um, volunteer fire departments and things like that from the time when you started to how things operate now um i think from from us it's just the the older generation that had all this knowledge um you know retiring and taking that knowledge with them and um, knowing that that knowledge that, well, I shouldn't say took with them, but that they passed on to guys like me, we now got to pass 
that on to the newer guys that are just joining and uh, men and women. And I think some of the generational differences are a little bit different. You know, we find ourselves writing policies now about social media and, hey, when you join the department, don't be putting on your Snapchat that, you know, recording that going lights and siren, you know, things like that. Um, I would say that's one thing that we're looking at. What, what are some things that you've seen as you go around these different conferences and talk to folks in the service? Well, I think you pretty much summed up a lot of it. There's just no question that, again, I would say it's societal changes. And I don't even mean that, you know, there are negative societal changes, but I just mean in general, mm-hmm. we all are. Our, our interests are so fractured anymore. And I mean that even within ourselves, I don't just mean that we don't get along with people. I just mean, we all, we have access to everything all the time now. And I think, I think of my chief up uh, where I'm from in the small town that I served for 12 years on the fire department. I talked to him recently and he said, yeah, it's that uh, someone will come and buy a house in that town. They have a job in another town. He said, they buy a house here. We see him drive into their garage at night and we see him drive out in the in the morning and we never see them otherwise. And it would not even occur to them to come down and join the fire department. And again, it's not that anybody's being nasty. It's just that we all are looking at screens. We're all occupied with our own very narrow interests. And that is the part where, like I said, I, I, I really one of. One of my goals in life, if I'm allowed to grow old, is to not just be the old guy yelling at the clouds all the time. But occasionally the observation is valid. And I do think the single biggest thing I see is just we do seem to be losing the ability to put ourselves uh, second to the community as a whole. Or you mentioned posting calls on social media you know it's it's like that to me it would be like the last thing you should do is take a picture of yourself on some on the scene of someone else's tragedy mm-hmm. and yet our younger generation and uh, not just the younger gen the new way is just I, I was on a flight to um somewhere south and we had one of those is there a doctor on a plane moments and apparently there wasn't a doctor on the plane so i finally <laughs> said well i could you know try to help and um and I just remember this poor person who it turns out probably had just had a seizure and was postictal. Mm-hmm. But I remember assessing her and making sure she had, you know, pulse and breathing. And and I stood up to to get the kit out of the overhead. And when I stood up and turned, there were three camera phones in my face of people filming. And I just thought, what? There I do turn into the old man yelling at the clouds because I'm like, so someone loses consciousness the mother screams for help and your first thought is i gotta film this and get right. whatever and that part is really hard that, that actually makes me angry and i know anger is not helpful but but i also just remember that was the very first time where i just realized that my way of thinking is becoming foreign <laughs> to these folks it's like mm-hmm. your instinct is to capture it and share it not mm-hmm. fix it or even comfort someone. So, mm-hmm. so um, I think and that's a pretty broad statement. Um, but I, I also don't think it's, you know, I really probably don't have anything to, original to add because everywhere I go, including other states, what they're dealing with, they just can't mm-hmm. find enough folks to. And in a way, I'm an example of it. I, you know, I do what I can, but I'm, I'm making, as I, I keep saying, a handful of calls because my job takes me on the road all the time. Right. 
One question I always had that I was curious of is after reading your your uh, book, uh, Population 45, and after it started selling and things like that, um, you were already on the, was it the New Auburn Fire Department at that time? Um, how, how was that received by the other members of the department? I love this question because, first of all, keep in mind, as I mentioned earlier, I am I come from blue-collar stock, man. I grew up milking cows and logging and uh, I was raised, I always say, by farmers and truckers, and and I'm the I was the kid who, uh, you know, my brothers to this day they just kind of people will say, oh, your brother's done really well with the writing, and the and and that they just go, yeah, it's a good thing he learned how to type because he's not much good at anything else, you know, because <laughs> like, I know how to run a chainsaw and I know how to get out there and work and I've stacked thousands of hay bales, but like I can't fix motors, I don't understand electricity, you don't want me digging out your basement, you know, it's like, um, and so to begin with, when I moved back to New Auburn, I'd been away for 12 years and I had established a career as a writer, but just a freelance magazine writer. I had a couple of self-published books and nobody really knew who I was. I was mostly writing for magazines and um, but they found out I was a writer. And so they always would kind of tease me about that. But again, I could the fact that I had soft hands and and would I'm like the first firefighter in village history to miss the monthly meeting because I had to go to a poetry reading. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. And did you but, let everyone know that was the reason why you missed the meeting? Absolutely, because <laughs> the bottom line was as long as I show up and go into the burning barn, they really don't care what I do in my spare time, and that's what I love about volunteer firefighting. I also do like to tweak them a little bit because I'm a guy. I did. I grew up a complete knucklehead, roughneck, pickup trucks, football, deer hunting, working on a ranch. But somehow, I also developed an interest in art and beauty and poetry. And I had a friend who who's who's a dancer. He's a, a modern dancer, and and I would I would go to the to, to watch him dance at one of his <clears throat> recitals. And then I would come to the softball game, you know, the beer and the softball game, the beer tent. And the guy's like, where you been? I said, oh, I was out watching a modern dance recital. And they're like, what the? <laughs> and I don't get that. And I said, well, I don't get it either, but it's beautiful. And guess what? You can go to the, watch the guy dance. And then you can also still go to the dirt track stock car races. I enjoy both endeavors, you know? <laughs> so I would kind of tweak them a little bit. But the main thing was that, I already, people always would, you know, they do something, go, oh, I suppose you're going to write about that. I get that a lot. But when I signed the contract to write the book Population 485, to, to be serious for a second, I immediately went to my chief and I said, I want you to know that I'm writing a book. A lot of it will be about the fire department and EMS. And we will, you know, there it got lawyered. I mean, the, it, the, you know, we're not going to have violations of privacy. And we dealt with that in very specific ways in individual cases. But I said, I want you to know that I'm writing this book. And then when it's in its final form, when we can still make changes, but it's as close as it's going to be to what will be published, I will let everyone know and anyone, you know, I, I change names and some description to give, but honestly, in a town of 485 people, everybody right. knows who Bob One-Eyed Beagle is, right? <laughs> so I, uh, but I, so I told the chief, I said, I will give anyone who wants an opportunity to read anything I've written about them, even if their name is changed. And if I got a fact wrong, if I told the story incorrectly, or if I wrote something that is inadvertently hurtful or damaging. I said, I will take care of that. I won't let anybody change things to make them look 
taller, more beautiful or rugged or what, you know, like, but I, but what I said to the chief then is I said, but what I'm going to ask you to do is don't say anything until that time. And that turned out to be the smartest thing I ever did, because then for about the next two years, I was working on the book and nobody but the chief knew. And then at the, the book is all done. It's in what they call galleys. So we can still make changes, but it's pretty much close to what it's going to be. I'm at the regular old monthly fire meeting and, you know, any new business? And I said, yeah, I'm writing a book and a lot of you people are in it. And, mm-hmm. and I said, so I said, if you want, just meet with me. I can tell you if you're in it or not. And um, I'll show you what I wrote and gave him the same spiel I gave the chief. And honestly, not too many people even were concerned. Um, but the example I give, there's a, a chapter, uh, I think it's chapter two or three, is all about my buddy Bob the One-Eyed Beagle, who's just a complete character. There's one of him in, on every department, but, um, and he's always make, doing these funny sayings, and a lot of them are in the book, and, and he's pretty hilarious. But the minute I announced that I was writing the book, people's behavior changed, and they started performing, and it to the point even i remember one day i told bob i said bob hey you can you can cut it out because the book is already written so you're wasting your time and then i said b your material has really gone down the toilet since you started (laughs) trying to create it for me like his natural stuff was hilarious but he would say something goofy and then he'd quick look at me like did you get that (laughs) you gotta let it go but that's how i dealt with it and in his case, I actually there's stuff in there. He has a he has a an eye injury that is very obvious, and I write about that. And I wrote about some of his personal life. And in that case, I literally had him come to my house. We sat down at my kitchen table, and I just went through it line by line. And he just I don't know what the rating on this podcast is, and I won't use any foul language, but I will say I said, well, right here I said that you know your face because your eye is like it's really scary to meet you at 3 a.m at the fire door and i said is that how do you feel about that and he goes i don't give a bleep <laughs> then, so i always say like 35 i don't give a bleeps later i figured we were good to go and to this day he still has a he has a sticker on his truck his with you know his fire fire department plates and everything but his nickname that i use in the book and everything on the truck and he got a big charge out of it the only you know, there's some things that you can only put your faith in people. And there's a, a scene in the beginning of the book that involves the death of a young girl. And in that case, I just I know her parents and I just went to them and I said, I'm writing this book. And, you know, I I, I think I might write this scene, but I have to ask your permission. That's not a legal thing. That's not a lawyer thing. They can still do whatever they want. And I said, I can only face to face say, may I write about this? And if you say no, I'll never bring it up again. And and they said yes, and you know ultimately felt that it was that it honored her, and so that part went okay. The 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 one complaint, the only actual, there were two two instances where people were upset with me. One was one of the the Bob the One-Eyed Beagle, one of his ex-wives got upset with me, <laughs> but we talked it out, and. Uh, <laughs> And what's really funny is the thing she got upset about, she didn't deny. <laughs> she just <laughs> wanted to tell her side. And actually, there's a, an edition of the book, the paperback, it's called a PS edition. And in the back, when the book came out and did well, they had me do a PS edition where I write a, an essay in the back that kind of like, here's what's happened since. Mm-hmm. And in that in that little essay, I told her side of the story just so that I could go back into the gas station again. She... <laughs> and then the, the one that I never saw coming. People always say, well, did anyone get upset 
with you for what you wrote in there? And I say, mostly no. I said, but what I didn't see coming was I would get cornered at the post office. I'd get cornered at the gas station by so many people right after the book came out who were angry. And they, they said, why am I not in the book? So their feelings were hurt that they weren't included. And of course, what I had to explain is like, look, I can only pick like eight to 12 archetypical people to use, you know, and I know that you're a really funny, entertaining person, but you just didn't make the cuts. <laughs> so that one, I never, I never, it never occurred to me that people would be upset because they weren't in the book. And again, I think just to put a, try to put a ribbon on it, the bottom line was before I wrote that book, after I wrote that book, I just showed up for calls like everybody else. And, you know, and also I think I get to, to get back to that thing about having soft hands and not being, you know, winding up being a writer who likes poetry readings and deer hunting. They just, they, there's a, there's a guy that I've known since my childhood who's on the fire department and, and he works at the feed mill. And one time after the book had been out for a while, and had gotten a lot of attention. He said, you know, I, I haven't read your, we were cleaning up after a fire. We were, you know, hanging hoses and stuff. And, and he said, man, I, I haven't read that book. I, I know I should. And I said, no, you don't, you don't have to read the book. He goes, no, I, I feel like I should, you know, you worked really hard on that and I, I should read it. And I said, man, you don't ask me to come down to the feed mill and watch you bag feed. You don't have to read my book. And then the kicker is I always go. And so he didn't. <laughs> but again, I think that's why I hope that's why it worked, because they saw that I was sincere in what I wrote and I was still showing up for calls just to do my job. Yeah, I hope. Volunteers are just you keep hearing there's not as many out there today as there once were maybe when you and I first started. Um, my department's been lucky. We've been been getting some uh, good quality people coming in. Um, but I know a lot of areas are struggling. And some of it has to do just with, you know, people moving out of rural areas and moving to more urban areas. Um, but do you have any any recommendation or words of advice that that you would give anyone that says, hey, are you aware that there's this need? Um, and yeah, you can you can probably do this. Well, I, I never uh, think of myself as someone to give advice. If you followed my career path, I'm a guidance counselor's worst nightmare. So uh, <laughs> But I can give my my impressions, you know, and I, I mentioned earlier about this friend of mine who joined up and, you know, later in his life and, and he's a fine woodworker and he didn't really think that was even his crowd. And I just said, man, just do it. You're going to be pleasantly surprised. And furthermore, we just need people with various backgrounds. And I will say that I do not. It, it is a tough conundrum. And, you know, I, like I said, I talked to my both my former chief and then the chief where I am now, everybody seems to be facing the same struggle. But the one thing is, I've seen two things that have been encouraging. One is, at least with the department I'm on now, they seem to be recruiting young people again. Um, and it's an active endeavor. Um, and then the second thing is, yeah, just those folks that <clears throat> I think, especially where I come from now, the new Auburn Fire Department, when I left it, it was 50-50 um, men and women. But there's no question that over time, we tend to think of volunteer firefighters as a certain sort of demographic. And I think that going to the people that you might think wouldn't be interested is a, has worked, at least mm -hmm. in my case. 
someone will say, well, I never thought of that because I'm not really like part of that crowd. It was like, no, you, you have skills. And furthermore, you know, you can bring something to this. And the more we get different perspectives and different abilities uh, in, in, in that fire meeting, I just think things, things get better. And frankly, you do widen your pool of applicants mm-hmm. when you're right. in. So that's kind of, that's frankly pretty wishy-washy, but I just think getting outside that mindset of that there's just a certain type of person who's a volunteer firefighter. It's like, no, I think there's lots of people that maybe just haven't considered it or haven't had it framed properly for them mm-hmm. or, or thinking of an outdated situation. Plus, I want to get back to lights and sirens. They're still exciting. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so nothing gets the adrenaline pumping more, right? Yeah, but I mean, and you, you know, the other thing is I, I, I do like that part of it. I like the excitement, but we also... You know, sometimes people say, well, I don't think I could handle that. And I say, well, first of all, you never know if you can handle it or not until you're faced with it. Secondly, it's not a character thing. If if mm-hmm. you can handle it, that's how you're wired. It doesn't mean you're a weak person. That's just not for you. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is that, uh, that I do talk to like that. The buddy of mine that just joined, I said, you know, he's a very low key, laid back, quiet guy. And I said, one of the biggest attributes you can have as a firefighter, as a first responder, is calmness. Mm-hmm. I said, all the skills in the world won't do you any good if you freak out or if you get over revved. And so I said, we can always use folks who can keep their head, who can look at a situation and size it up. So I think I I do love the excitement and the adrenaline part of it, but I never want to uh, overdo that part of it and omit those right. folks who just keep give you that solid base and foundation. I really like what you said about uh, for those who say they might not be able to handle, you know, dealing with emergency scenes. It doesn't mean that they're weak. It just means that they're they're wired differently, but they still have skills to give in some way, some form. So, yeah. I I do talk about that sometimes. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a writer who, uh, if you read some of my stuff, I write a lot of humor, a lot of goofy stuff, but I also write some absolutely from the heart stuff. And um, and I love, as I've already mentioned poetry a couple of times. And <clears throat> so I'm, my wife will tell you, I'm super sensitive to the point of silly. Like I'm the one in our marriage who gets his feelings hurt. But for some reason, I can also, I can run into a burning building or I can deal with the most horrific, mutilated, awful accident scene and then go back to work. And it's not, be, it certainly isn't because I am calloused because I demonstrate in my daily life that I'm way too sensitive. And that, and it's not that I'm a, a hot shot because I'm not swaggering in there going, I can handle this. It's It literally has to be wiring. And I'm wired in that I can handle those emergencies. I don't handle the day-to-day stresses so well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely a place for all kinds of different folks in fire and EMS. Um, I don't know if there's any last second things you want to uh, mention as we close out or if there's any plugs you want to give about any things you got coming up, any books or any shows or anything like that. Yeah, I appreciate that. I am self-employed. So uh, the main thing is if you get a chance, just swing by sneezingcow.com. That comes from a humor album I did years ago called Never Stand Behind a Sneezing Cow. 
And if you're from Wisconsin, and especially rural Wisconsin, I shouldn't have to explain that one to you. Uh, <laughs> and honestly, on that humor recording, uh, it's, it's called Never Stand Behind a Sneezing Cow, and you can find it on my website, sneezingcow.com. Um, but there are a couple of the little stories. There are stories about a made-up town in rural Wisconsin, but there's a couple of stories in there about the little volunteer firefighting okay. uh, department. Um, yeah. EMS and fire tend, you know, population 45 obviously is centered around firefighting and EMS, but it also surfaces in my other books and essays every now and then tangentially. But yeah, sneezingcow.com. And I do, if you go there, there's an events page where I'm speaking or singing with the band. And um, if I have a new book come out or a new recording, that's the place. Uh, Actually, the very best thing you can do there is if you don't mind, just sign up for the old fashioned email list. There's a Mm -hmm. place that's mailing list because we are on all the social platforms but they're shifty and they change their algorithms so an old-fashioned email is the best and then i think the last thing i would just say is uh just gratitude i we kind of started out talking about this but i'm not the best firefighter i'm certainly not the best rescuer i'm not an expert i'm not the guy you want explaining the latest acronym to you but man what a privilege to be part I've been part of the EMS and fire community longer than I've been part of any community, uh, longer than I've been married, longer than I've been a writer. Um, since 1988, I've been making calls with people. And in the end, it just leaves me uh, with gratitude. And that's that's where I'd leave it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Um, thank you for what you do to give back to the, the fire service community and the EMS community and, and all that you do. Thank you. Yeah.